0: scholar and he holds a master's degree from the Azrieli graduate school and obtained smicha from the rabbi isaac Elchanan's Theolo- theological seminary yeah. <laughs> so that is quite the resume quite the uh success we're so glad to have you with us in our community in our school and with cce so rabbi i will hand it over to you to take it away Cool. Thank you so, so much, Judith. Um, Thanks for everything that you do for our community. And I want to uh, thank everybody. I was really excited about doing this, um, uh, just having an opportunity to learn with people, but I want to be really explicit about uh, the goals. So you may have seen the poster uh, for this particular uh, class. I want to be explicit about what the goals for the next next two sessions, this session and the following two is. Uh, I believe... Uh, as somebody that teaches, uh, has taught both adults and uh, teenagers and middle schoolers, um, that there exists a tremendous gap. Uh, for example, uh, when, well not me, because I'm not good at math, but if, if you could do basic arithmetic, um, which I sometimes struggle with, so your child comes home with their math homework and you more or less are able to assist your child in, in, their, in their homework, you could understand, and you understand what's going on in the classroom. Um, however, on the Judaic side, whether you're somebody who had the benefit of a day school education, or maybe even if you didn't have and you came later in life to, uh, to Jewish practice and learning, when your child comes home with their Chumash homework, um, or when they come home with their Talmud homework in a grade that's a little bit older, um, or anything really having to do with Judaic studies, so there's often a gap, uh, not a lack of understanding of what it is that goes on in, in the classroom and uh, and what exactly the connection between home and school is. Uh, one of my goals in this, and although these uh, classes are open for everybody in the community, really, uh, whether you have a child in day school or not, um, one of my goals is to create stronger links between home and school, community and school, when it comes to uh, matters of, uh, of Judaic's education. And that's why I thought uh, that it would be so fun to talk about really a topic that I believe appeals to seasoned uh, experts and, um, and scholars alike and beginners. And that is the notion of our oral tradition. What does it mean? What are the mechanics of it? What's the history of it? Uh, how does it impact us, and what is its relevance? An oral tradition that I'm going to be talking about that we're going to be learning about is uh, really what we understand to be the Talmud, uh, both the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud, as well as uh, as well as the Mishnah and the Rabbinic uh, Midrashim, both Halachic and Agadic, and of course, I'm already tossing out many terms that I hope to be able to explicate over the course of these classes. Um, but that brings me to a second goal. And I say this to my students all the time when I begin uh, learning Gemara with them. And uh, what I say to them is that I remember distinctly. I think maybe uh, my superpower as a teacher is the following thing. My superpower as a teacher uh, I think the first thing is that I know that I need to get better. So you always need to wa- work on it. That's one thing. That's the superpower for everybody. As uh, one of my rebus, Brene Brown, talks about being a constant learner. Um, but the the second superpower I have is that I was a terrible student. Uh, when I sat in Gemara class in elementary school, and I had great teachers. I had really, really good teachers. And my parents um, sacrificed for me to have a, an unbelievable education but i sat in class and i thought that i was reasonably intelligent i guess i could i could get by but gemara in particular was bewildering uh, i spent the entire time in gemara class from 6th grade on um completely lost and this wasn't for lack of trying on my grandfathers, who were both educators themselves. They would always try and sit down with me. I could not be interested in it. I could not understand it. I had no entry. And I believe that part of that is because that there was something missing in the way that we teach Gemara often and in the way that I was maybe taught Gemara, is that we come with so many assumptions. We come with so many uh, baseline facts that we think students or adults often have when it comes to understanding and to learning Talmud, which Professor Daniel Bayarin calls the portable homeland of the Jewish people. And when for thousands of years we didn't have Uh, our own physical homeland, we carried the Talmud and we carried rabbinic literature with us and it animated us as a people and it kept us alive. It was life's blood up until uh, really leading into modernity and we've seen a resurgence in Talmud study and in Mishnah study in our days, you know, just last year or maybe it was before the pandemic. Time really doesn't uh, mean that much anymore. It's become a big cholent, um, but, uh, but thousands, tens of thousands of uh, our co religionists packed into stadiums to celebrate the completion of the Talmud. So I thought, what if we went back to the very beginning and we challenged all of those basic assumptions that people have when they open up a Gemara or a Mishnah or any kind of rabbinic literature that we went back to the very beginnings and tried to understand the foundations of this. And I'm happy to say that this is part of our new curriculum at Bicultural. It's part of how we teach uh, Introduction to Mishnah. It's what we're doing now with our fifth graders and sixth graders. And it's what we're going to continue to do because I believe, and I believe research shows as well, that when you do put out those building blocks, those foundations, and don't make assumptions about what is known, then you could start to very clearly build an edifice of learning uh, that is both strong and uh, creates interest and hopefully lifelong learners. So without further ado, I'm going to share. I prepared some slides for us. um, And uh, I hope if you could just, uh, the people that have their screens on, I really appreciate you. If you could just give me a thumbs up. um, Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead. I just see some more people are joining us. Here we go. All right, so we call this Begin Again, and this is session number one of Begin Again. And uh, the reason I said Begin Again is because I intend this kind of class for, again, the people who have done this before and have gone through the system, and people who might be learning these things for the first time. And as uh, my rabbis like to say, we are going to make this shavelichol Nefesh, something that hopefully is, uh, is speaking to everybody wherever they're at. So this is our introduction to Torah Shivalpah, the oral tradition. It is Kislev 5782, the fourth night of Hanukkah. A happy Hanukkah to all of you. So the first question I want to talk about is maybe perhaps the most fraught question. Before we talk about what the oral tradition is, we have to ask why. Uh, that's another thing that I got from... Uh, from uh, Brene Brown. Uh, you guys could t- I spend a lot of time listening to her in the car. Um, that before you teach what, you need to teach why. And the why over here, I think, is uh, an important question. Why should I care about the oral tradition? Why should I? I have a, there's the Torah. Okay. i i I could at least wrap my head around a, a a Sinai revelation that happened a long time ago, and the Torah is you know this sacred text for you know three of the world 's religions and the vast majority of the world 's population you know Bible we could wrap our heads around rationally and, and try and understand but the oral tradition um, something that came from sinai that 's not written down and that contains myriad laws uh, that seek to Regulate almost every aspect of, of life from how I tie my shoes to how I raise my family to how I educate or carry out my business or what I eat, um, and, uh, where I can walk and go. All these things in the, in the oral tradition, all of those laws that define rabbinic Judaism that we, uh, that we are all members of. So that oral tradition, do I need to believe in that? Where does that come from? What kind of an idea is an oral tradition? So I want to um, first say something, I believe it was St. Augustine. Uh, You didn't come to a uh, Torah Shabbat Pet class to hear about uh, the early church fathers, but St. Augustine said something, I believe in his meditations, he wrote something very very interesting. He said that understanding leads to belief. Understanding leads to belief. Now it is true that in Judaism, uh, there are things that we are enjoined to believe, even if they defy rational thought. A good example of that is something, a concept of resurrection of the dead or the afterlife. I can't fathom as a person living in this world what those concepts actually mean at all. That concept is completely beyond the ken of my understanding. Even I would would argue, and I don't wanna be too provocative, but believe in God. Right. God is inherently, when more you study about it, you recognize that belief in God is one that is predicated on a fact that, that we, that we relegate a bit of doubt. It's called faith for a reason. It's, it's knowledge is ultimately impossible because God exists as infinite and we are finite. So those things I believe that no matter how much we seek to understand, we're ultimately not going to be able to get it and we have to just believe in it. But there are concepts, there are foundations of our faith that are to be believed and understanding, like Augustine said, understanding leads to that belief. I cannot believe in something that which I do not understand. And now just putting myself in the mind of a sixth grader in my classroom or an adult that you know, comes into a, to a lecture in Shul or a Dafyomi class and they open up a Gemara and they tell them, okay, now we're learning uh, Amr of Yochanan or the Amr of Yehuda, the Mishnah of the Gemara says. Think about how much is assumed before that person says, is this relevant to me? Is this something that is important to me? Why am I why am I wait- why am I spending time trying to understand this? And I think that the more that you figure out and understand what the oral tradition is, uh, then it leads to belief in the oral tradition, or it leads to, at the very least, recognition of its value and importance. Um, so I want to quote over here from one of the most foundational texts that is germane to this discussion and this comes from Maimonides. This comes from the Rambam, uh, the great eagle, as he's called. The Rambam, I'm just going to add uh, another person into the room. The Rambam writes in his commentary to the Mishnah. Does anybody know, you could type into the comments, does anybody know how old Maimonides was when he wrote his commentary to the Mishnah? Pretty, uh, pretty. Um, at least for me, like a, a rather confound. He was 18 years old when he wrote it. Uh, his commentary to the Mishnah was actually written in Arabic, um, which was uh, Maimonides' primary language. And The commentary to the Mishnah, the Rambam writes in his Hakdama to the parish of the Mishnah, the introduction to his commentary on the Mishnah, he uh, elucidates a concept um, that became canon, in Judaism, that is the concept of the 13 articles of faith. 13 things that uh, every believer uh, of our faith should believe. Belief in God, and belief in the afterlife, belief in a, a Sanaitic revelation, all of these things are part of the foundation leaf. 13 of them, to be sure. And the eighth one is that the Torah that we have is the Torah that was given to Moses at Sinai, and that every Torah in the world is like them. There's corollaries, and Maimonides explains that that devolves into other things also, in his commentary on the Mishnah. I'm going to read here. Similarly, its interpretation, referring to the Torah, the Torah's interpretation, as it has been handed down, is also from the mouth of the Almighty. Meaning the explanations of the things in writing, they too come from God. That which we observe today, such as the form of the Sukkah, the Lulav, the Shofar, the Tzitzit, and the Tfilin, and other such forms, are the actual forms which God told to Moses and which he told to us. Let's take uh, let's take, we're going to go to some of these other examples later. Let's take the notion of tefillin. When you look in the Torah, just the written Torah, it doesn't tell you about these black boxes, doesn't tell you what the color is, doesn't tell you what the shape is, doesn't tell you what you're supposed to put in them. It doesn't tell you where you're supposed to put them. It doesn't really give me any details. In fact, when the Torah describes tefillin, it uses even a strange word, the word totafot, which the Talmud tells us actually is a foreign word. It comes from an African language, the Talmud tells us, believe it or not. So the Torah uses these cryptic words to describe something that is so foundational to many people's daily practice. So how did we get from that, the Torah's lack of detail into the boxes, the leather boxes and the things that that, that are so expensive and precious? And how could it be? So tefillin, we say, is a halacha la moshe mi-Sinai. It's not written in the Torah, but the shape, the form, and all these details were something that Moshe said over orally to the Jewish people during the revelation at Sinai, and so many other things as well, but that's a really good example, and all of these examples that Maimonides uses are very specific for that purpose. I mean, Maimonides... You don't get to be a Maimonides without weighing every single word. Um, the Rambam weighed every word that is written um, with a with a, a world historic genius. The Rambam continues, he says that he is the transmitter of the message, faithful in its transmission. We understand that Moses is the one who transmitted these perushim, these explanations and these uh, elaborations on the written Torah and that the transmission was faithful. Moses didn't add anything, God forbid, of his own. It wasn't like Moses said at Sinai, for example. Let me just uh, stop the share for a second so I could see the people with the screens on. Right. Moses didn't say at Sinai, hmm, you know, I really hate chocolate ice cream. Let's add into the Torah. When I tell people about the laws of Kashrut and the Torah, I'm going to tell them no chocolate ice cream is allowed either. You're not allowed to have chocolate ice cream. Moses didn't do anything like that because the only thing that Moses was allowed or enjoined to transmit, whether in writing or orally, was that which God commanded him to do. That is a tenet of our faith. That is the foundation of our faith. So, indeed, when it comes to believing in an oral tradition that came along with the written tradition, which is tangible that we could hold in our hands, so part of the foundation of belief is that the Torah came with perushim hanitanim misinai, as Maimonides terms in his commentary, explanations that were also given at Mount Sinai. Let's go back to our slides. So, to the next slide. There are really two different perspectives, though, on how broad a concept this is. Really, everything was given over at Har Sinai? So I want to explain for a second what we might term the maximalist approach. Right? The maximalist approach, which is an approach that's held and believed by uh, very many of our co-religionists, um, whether if you 're interested in my own personal views i don 't know if this is necessarily the venue for it um, but uh, but I would say that this was the one that I was taught in school when I was growing up. This was something that was uh, that was introduced to us and and this was the one that that we were told to believe and uh, and it goes like this: The maximalist approach finds many sources in the rabbinic tradition. I would say the one that i 'm most familiar with. Excuse me, comes from the Jerusalem Talmud, uh, Mesechet Paya, chapter 2, Mishnah 4. And if the term Jerusalem Talmud uh, confounds you, don't worry, because we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, we're going to talk about the divergence of the Jerusalem the Babylonian Talmuds, how it got to be that we have not one, but two Talmuds. I thought, one is enough, really. I mean, it uh, takes up two of the shelves here in my office. But uh, <laughs> the, And then we're also going to talk about the stuff that didn't even make it into the Talmud. What about Tosefta? What about Braytas? What about Midrashah, Lachan, Gada? All of these terms, if it's something... It, even now, if I say something that requires more explanation, all you have to do uh, is just type it into the chat. I'll see it and I'll try and address it in a hopefully seamless manner. But uh, back, to, back to this Mishnah in the Jerusalem Talmud and Listen to this. I'm going to say it in Hebrew. You have here the English right underneath, um, but just for the, for the music of it. Um, parenthetically, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name right now. Arut Calderon. Uh, I hope people here have seen, and Belin Edder, I'm going to share resources of all the, I go on a lot of tangents when I teach, I apologize in advance. Uh, if you haven't seen, Ruth Calderon was a member of the Kadima party in Israel. Let me stop the share for a second. She was a member of the Kadima party in Israel. She also happens to be a Talmud scholar, and she leads a uh, a, uh, a secular Beit Midrash uh, uh, in, uh, I believe it was called Alma in Tel Aviv, there's a resurgence of uh, reconnecting uh, with Jewish texts for people from the entire spectrum of uh, observance and practice, which I think is such a a gorgeous, exciting, beautiful thing. Um, so, Ruth Calderon uh, became a Knesset member. And every Knesset member, when they're brought into the Knesset, they have to give a maiden speech, uh, you know, their Naum uh their, their, their opening speech, and talk about where they're from. And many of them talk about their party and their platform and, you know, politician kind of stuff. Uh, Ruth Calderon talked about her deep roots as a Sabra, uh, coming from a Mizrahi family, uh, obtaining a PhD in Talmud study as a woman, uh, as a woman who uh, is of not a heterodox practice, um, an amazing scholar. I have a a whole bunch of her books as well, if you want to borrow from me, just an amazing reader of Talmud and a a, a teacher with so much chesed and kindness also. Uh, So she chose to give her maiden speech in the Knesset uh, as a Gemara Shir. And and if you haven't seen the video, uh, Rabbi uh, Ellie Fisher a uh, translator living in Israel actually uh, put the ketoviot. he put the, uh, the footnotes, uh, not the footnotes, footnotes, Arad Shulayim. Uh, Ketoviyot are the subtitles uh, to this speech, so you can watch in English as well if your modern uh, Israeli Hebrew uh, isn't as quick as Roots is, and uh, it's, she's fast. Um, but she talks about resurgence of Talmud learning, and she talks about uh, explaining. And uh, and understanding this idea of transmission and this notion over here of finding everything in the Torah. And she uh, talks about this approach of Yeshua ben Levi Omer. So she says in her speech, uh, I'm going to read it once in the Aramaic for the music, right? Even if uh, you don't understand the Aramaic, there's something beautiful about it. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi Omer, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says... Alehem ve Alehem. Talking about the Luchot, the Pasik says that God wrote Alehem upon them, on those luchot, kichol, like all these words. So what does that mean? Mikra Mishnah Talmud v'agadah. So the Mishnah Peah tells us that on the Luchot, not only did we find the written Torah, but on those Luchot were all of the oral Torah that was eventually going to be written down centuries hence. Rather, a mind-expanding idea, and then it says in the bold, and here's the translated section: a bold claim. Even that which a seasoned student explains before their master was already said to Moshe in Mount Sinai. Meaning, any question that you say tonight or any Torah, or any new idea that I would come and say this evening, that too was given over at Har Sinai, at the Theophany at Har Sinai. This this was given over as well. And this is that maximalist approach. This is that, that everything, ah, thank you. I just saw that Judith, ah, CCE, go CCE. Yes, Judith, uh, if you wanna see Ruth Calderon's speech, Judith, just shake your head, you've seen it before. Uh, it's, isn't it good? Oh, it's, the, it's the best, she's the best. Ah, ah, thanks Judith. So this maximalist approach basically says, nothing that we say in Torah hasn't been said already. It was all given over at Sinai, this was all said already. Everything that we're doing actually is really recovery. We're we're not discovering anything new because it was always give, it was always given over, and and there, you find other statements like this. Uh, ben Bagbag says uh, that's actually his name, Ben Bagbag. Uh, at least in Mishnah Avod, and Pirkei Avod. you may have heard Ben Bagbag said, "Turn it over and turn it over for everything is in it." Right? You could plumb the depths of Torah, and you could find quantum physics. You could find pop culture. I've been, in a, I've been on a Steely Dan phase right now. You could find Steely Dan in the Torah. Right? You could find anything you want that, and that includes the oral tradition. It's all there. And there's a, a statement in a more mystical sense. The, the Bavli in Yoma tells us on Lamed Chesamed Beis 38b that there is nothing that is not alluded to in Torah. Now these are maximalist approaches. Surely it must be that there is uh, maybe a different kind of approach because in the Torah itself, we don't really find, we don't really find any sort of notion of these perushim. In fact, the Torah gives very scant detail to that which is not written in it. So, so that's, a, that's a, a big leap to be making and that's why there's also a more minimalist approach. And the the minimalist approach. I see already questions coming in uh, in, in the chat. Oh no, <laughs> um, I can't get sidetracked. Uh, I, I, if you're saying it publicly, I, I hope I could say your name, John. It's a, such a good question. It's also in the next year, but I'm going to touch upon your question at the end. But let's let's just take a look at this notion because we've seen the maximalist approach. What about a minimalist approach? Do I really have to believe that all this stuff was given over? At Harsini, do you have to really believe that everything, even what we say this evening, was given to Moshe at Sinai? Would that mean that Moshe has got to be up there for a lot more than 40 days also? So a minimalist approach basically says the following. And this comes from the, uh, the old edition of the Encyclopedia Judaica. Two old-time scholars, Willem Bacher and, ooh, sorry, uh, I don't want to show all my cards just yet. And Jacob Zalel, Jacob they write the following thing in the entry on Talmudic hermeneutics. So they write, since the halacha, however, is regarded simply as an exposition and explanation of the Torah, Talmud hermeneutics includes also the rules by in which the requirements of the oral law are derived from and established by the written law. And that's a mouthful. What does that mean? So I'm gonna stop the share so I could see you guys again. Um, what does that mean? It means the following: in the daily prayers, uh, there is something called the Yud Gimel Midot Nidrashet Torah Nidreshet Rabbi Yishmael's thirteen principles through which the Torah is interpreted. And they're very hard to understand, but it became part of the daily prayers. It's part of the liturgy. And the notion, this minimalist approach basically says that Moshe didn't really hear everything that, we're, that any Talmud that, that's going to come in any Sefer throughout all the generations, it can't be. And it's not, well, it could be, but it's just not that which was revealed at Sinai. So what was Moshe given? He was given a text. He was given a Torah. And in the Torah, with it, he was given a decoder ring. And the decoder ring is 13 principles by which you look at the Torah text and through application of these rules, of these hermeneutical principles, I'm able to get everything that we call halacha. I'm able to get everything that we call the Torah from that. And by the way, the 13 principles of Rabbi Shmal are not the only ones. There's other collections of principles as well, and there's different opinions as to which principles were actually given over. But this is a, a vastly more rationalistic approach. I call it the minimalist approach, but it's one that's easier to wrap your head around, rather than a more a, a, a more a more mystical, uh, difficult approach of everything being given over somehow. At the same time that the Torah was revealed, we have here an approach that, that speaks to rationality. I'm given a text and I'm given principles through which I can look beyond that text. The Torah says X, Y, and Z, and by applying a, an A4 Shiori principle, what we call a kal v'chomer, I could, uh, if, if A, then B, so then I can, I can get or I can work my way to everything that it is that we call the Torah Shabalpeh. So that's our that's our more minimalist approach. I want to pause for a second because there's some uh, questions coming in. Those that have your screens on, it's hard on Zoom. If I could just get a, a thumbs up that that I'm being heard, uh, fantastic. Okay, I always find, sometimes it's happened that like I've been speaking to a frozen screen uh, because the Wi-Fi gave out. This has happened in uh, Zoom school uh, during the early uh, days uh, when we were all migrating to this wonderful app uh with uh, which has uh, so many uh, powerful tools um but uh, you know it's happened before they've spoken to a screen people are either really listening intently or frozen because their connection went out 5 minutes ago um let me just uh let me look at one question over here so somebody said just because Moshe heard it all at Sinai does it mean he understood it all um the answer i can resolutely say is no, Moshe Rabbeinu, even if I hold the maximalist approach, Moshe Rabbeinu uh, did not understand it. And the reason I know that, and I feel bad for showing cards for uh, the next class that we're going to do, but one of the most moving, astounding, uh, amazing rabbinic texts comes from the Gemara in Menachot, Daf memchet and we're going to look at it next week, God willing. But that Gemara essentially places Moses in the classroom of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is teaching Torah, and I don't want to give away the punchline here, but Rabbi Akiva is teaching Torah, and Moshe Rabbeinu does not understand what Rabbi Akiva is teaching. That's in the Talmud. right? The Talmud contains all kinds of uh, wonderfully radical and uh, amazing tantalizing ideas of contradiction and paradox, and, um, and this story is, is certainly one of them. So to answer your question, John, uh, no, Moshe, uh, Moshe was... This is owing to Moshe's job as a receptacle, as uh, merely a conduit, a vessel from godly wisdom to us. And that's what we said and the Rambam made sure to point out in his commentary to the Mishnah that Moshe uh, inserted nothing of his own self. Moshe was, was, was uh, something through which Torah was to slew us down from divine into this world. Another question that we got over here is that if every single word matters, when did Moshe actually transcribe it? Because if it wasn't in real time, it seems hard to believe that Moshe and any oral tradition would maintain every single word that would now pour over and make meaning from. Oh my gosh, you guys, these are such good questions. So to answer that, because um, I don't want to get too sidetracked and believe it or not, uh, time is flying fast. Uh, hopefully we're having fun. Um, To answer that question um, is that there is a machloket. Um, By the way, the answer to any Jewish question, if you get caught on the spot, is it's a machloket. It's a dispute. Um, You could usually get away with that one, and you could even seem like you really know what you're talking about also. Um, It is a machloket. In the Gemara, I believe the Gemara appears in Mesechat Bava Batra, uh, where uh, there's a collection of Talmudic paracopes that talk about uh, issues of canonicity and, uh, and what books made it into the Jewish canon of 24 books of Tanakh, what didn't, uh, who is responsible for writing them. So in the Talmud's discussion there of the writing of the Torah, uh, one of the opinions is that everything was given over to Moshe, written down at the time of Matan Torah, at the time of Revelation at Harsinai, and that, uh, you know, the future, It's uh, this one's, again, harder to wrap your head around. The future was already revealed, but not revealed until you turn the page of the book. I have this experience sometimes where I go back to a book that I've read before and I turn it over and I'm like, I don't think that it said that the last time I read this. You ever have that experience, guys? Right? It's like you turn over a page and you're actually opening up a little, uh, uh, you know, a little Schrodinger's box. And you're like, uh, is that really what was written there before? It's completely unknown until I turn over that page. Um, maybe that's the way to think about the way that the Torah was written. However, the other opinion is that the the Torah was Megillah, Megillah, Nitnit. Nit. Um, uh, uh, Paul, do you have your hand raised as well? Oh, okay. Um, the, the Torah was Megillah Megillah Nitnate. That means that there was stuff given over to Moshe at Har Sinai, perhaps on things that happened in the past. And then after every episode in the Torah, for example, Korach and his followers attack Moses' leadership, a very uh, scary, troubling episode and much, much, much later in, uh, in, in, in Sefer Bamidbar. So after that episode finished and all the events transpired, this Megillah, Megillah, scroll by scroll opinion says that Moshe was then given the authorized account by the divine to write it down. And then that became part of the Torah. And by the end of Moses's life, all of these Megillot were brought together and were tied together. Okay, so that's that's the answer to that question. Truth be told, that it, that that is a whole shear on its own. I know that we only allotted like two or three classes for this. Uh, we could talk about this for the rest of a lifetime. This could certainly hopefully generate uh, many more excurses and shear in different areas as well. But let's let's go back to the uh let's go back to the to to the to the sheets that we have over here. And um I just like this this uh, woodcut of Matan Torah. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, you see people with smiles on their faces. This, I think, is a good one because at the Theophany at Sinai, uh, the Talmud tells us that it was a rather jarring experience. In fact, the Talmud says that the souls of the people left them. Uh, they were shocked to death at the revelation of God and the voice of God, so much so that when it returned to them, they begged Moses after the first, they said, look, you got to say this. We can't hear another word from God. It's too much from us. Uh, can't handle it. So you see here, people here, they, they don't seem to be uh, too happy. They seem to be in the throes of some sort of uh, overwhelming experience. Uh, so I think that this is a pretty solid representation. So that brings me to uh, our second question of the evening, which is, so, okay, God gives us a Torah, the Torah seems to be sufficient for many world religions, uh, even though they have their own oral traditions as well. Um, but what is the necessity of the oral tradition? Besides understanding its foundational uh, notion as a belief, uh, as, a, as a primary uh, aspect of, of, of Judaism, why is it necessary in the first place? And what you're looking at over here is a rather beautiful Sefer Torah scroll. Uh, you know why this is a really special one? Even though I got this image off of uh, Google, um, this is a very clean cloth. As you can see, the Torah is actually stitched together, much like that medrash that we saw before. Um, it's stitched together over here. And this is an Ashkenazi Sefer Torah. I don't want to be Ashkenormative uh, too much. This is a Sephardi Sefer Torah's uh, quite a beautiful affair in its own right. Um, but if you look over here, so you'll see what we call parshiot pituchot, and stumot. Here's a little primer. If you were looking into a Torah where you see my cursor is over here, um, or I could even uh, annotate. Check this out. Okay, so if I annotate over here, so this line over here, that is what we call a parsha pitucha. That is an open section. What we see over here, that section where there's a space, but the line continues, that's what we call a parasha situma, a closed section of the Torah. That is, by and large, the only the only help that we have in a Torah scroll to know what's heads or tails. If you look here, there are no there's no punctuation, there's no cantillation marks, much to the chagrin of many a, a bar and bat mitzvah girl. Right. There is no cantillation marks. There is no vowelization at all. I got to know that this word, for example, over here, this word is venis or is it venis Who knows? It doesn't have any vowelization. It doesn't have any details. In fact, it doesn't really even tell me where the chapters are. Believe it or not, the chapters are a much much later uh, invention. Actually, that comes from Jewish Christian disputes. Uh, not really ours. Uh, the notion of chapters, the most traditional notion of where things begin and end, is these p'tuchotus tumot. That's the only thing uh, that that we have from from long uh, tradition. And I see that. Uh, so I see that I'm, I'm nearly uh, going to be running out of time. So let's just go and check out the next slide because. I wanna talk about the necessity of this oral tradition. So I wanna give three examples of why we need an oral tradition. And uh, even, if, um, uh, even if we don't finish, I, I, my goal, I always tell teachers, uh, this is a line I got from my mentors, the goal is not to cover material, but rather to uncover material. So I, I would, I hope it's, uh, even if we don't finish, that too is okay. Three examples of the necessity of an oral tradition. So let's take a look, for example, at kosher slaughter. Um, as anybody who has uh, has uh, bought expensive kosher meat knows, um, kosher slaughter is a very big deal, and uh, it involves a lot of laws, a lot of experts, and uh, and and a lot of knowledge in order to be able to do it properly. And we have a verse in the Torah, and you have the English here. You can follow along as well. This is the verse in the Torah that tells us how to slaughter our meat. You ready? <speaking in Hebrew> You should slaughter from your cattle and your sheep. God has given you these awesome things. As I have commanded you and you can eat to your heart's content. That's the Torah's commandment of slaughter. There's a problem here though. The problem is that it doesn't really tell me how I'm supposed to do it. It doesn't really tell me anything. In fact, the laws of kosher slaughter are so complex that you need to get a special kind of smicha in order to be able to do it. I am an ordained rabbi, believe it or not, and I have no idea how to slaughter an animal. I would have to go back to yeshiva and I would have to take more tests and I would have to study different texts in order to be able to do it. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, um, but somebody told me, um, somebody told me that on the YU you smicha curriculum get this and uh, I know this is being recorded so if I'm wrong I'm wrong and I'm probably wrong on many other things on the YU smicha curriculum uh, back in the day they used to teach shechita they used to teach the laws of kosher slaughter as part of the curriculum for every smicha student for every rabbi that was going to go out into the field they needed to learn the laws of kosher slaughter and you know it was not on the Semicha curriculum, the laws of Shabbos were not on the Semicha curriculum. And somebody explained that this actually has a historical reason, because the historical reason is that in the 20s and 30s, you didn't have a large uh, kosher meat conglomerates, and you didn't have large kosher soup, and you maybe had a butcher uh, in you know, areas of Jewish concentration, but if I were to go out to a far-flung place, I don't know, like, uh, well, Stanford was established at that point, but if I were to go somewhere far-flung, and I were to get there, there would be no kosher meat available unless somebody there knew how to slaughter kosher meat. So if the rabbi was coming out there, they better know how to slaughter And At the same time, it was also a time in American Jewish history where any sort of Shabbat observance of any form whatsoever was virtually impossible. You would lose your job every week. So maybe it was perhaps not part of the curriculum because this wasn't something that was necessarily uh, the, the main focus of rabbinic teaching at the time because the social reality was as such that it simply was not something that was in the cards if somebody wanted to do a minimal observance. So that's an interesting notion about Shechita uh, in general, but as you could see, the Torah doesn't really tell me the details. So how do I know how I'm supposed to slaughter a kosher animal? So the answer to that is, is that this is Moshe actually told this Pasuk to the people and then demonstrated. And that makes a lot of sense because Shechita, slaughter, is a very trigger warning. I mean, I know we're talking about uh, things that might not be pleasant to everybody, um, but slaughter is something that is very hands-on. Can't just write about it. Even though we have plenty of writings now, you need to show somebody. I can't take an online course in kosher slaughter because I need to actually do it. So that's why it wasn't written down, but it was rather demonstrated to the people. And there's books of the laws of kosher slaughter. That's example number one. Example number two, Example number two is the following. Um, the Torah tells us, hold on one second, the Torah tells us about a certain kind of fat. Um, there, is a, um, uh, there is a kind of fat cap that exists on certain flank cuts of meat. I tried to really understand this. Um, I, I'm not a butcher, uh, so I don't really know what I'm talking about here. But there's a certain kind of fat cap uh, that is commanded in the Torah that we're not allowed to eat. Here's the verse for it. You ready? The verse is from Sefer Vayikra. Chukat Doro Techem, a law for all your generations, b'chol moshevotachem, in all your dwellings, kol chet lamed bet. All of this, v'chol dam lo and all of blood, you cannot eat. Now, chet lamed bet. It can mean chalav, it can mean milk, or it can mean chelev. One of these would make life very, very difficult for us. Is the Torah really commanding us that I'm not allowed to eat any milk? I can't drink milk, have any milk products? Or is the Torah prohibiting to us a very specific cut of fat that exists on the cap of a flank cut? Is that what it's prohibiting? And when you look in a Torah scroll, this is what you see. When you look in a Torah scroll, this is a really cool uh, website over here. Uh, it's a tikkun. So for example, if you want to know what this word is, I just... I put my cursor over it, and it gives me uh, the, the punctuation. But take a look at the verse that starts over here, right? You see where the cursor is? All Torahs for all time looked like this, and I didn't know whether it was chalav, milk, or chalev. Guess what? Milk is still allowed. It's on the menu, right? It's chalev that is prohibited. Chilev is the thing that we cannot eat and that's why if I just had an oral tradition, I would not know the, the, the if, if I just had a written Torah, I would not know that milk would be permitted because I would look at this and I would not know. And there are myriad examples of this. And the last example, and we'll probably wrap up tonight with this example, is what is an etrog? Sorry about that. What is an etrog? Again, the Torah says in the written Torah, the English is right underneath. And you should take on the very first day. These are the four species: the palm frond. Uh, that's that's fair enough. Everybody knows what that is. A very specific kind of species. Anafet Savot was specific enough to refer uh, to a uh, to the myrtle branch, and nachal was specific enough to refer to the willow. What's creates Hadar? And if you notice in, in the English, they also don't know. They just say Hadar, not much of a translation here. I brought this nice little chart over here because Hadar means citrus fruit. Is it a pomelo? Is it an orange? Is it, I don't know what that is, like a kumquat or something. I don't even know if that's a citrus fruit. Um, is it a, a different kind of lemon? Is it a person? What is it that we're talking about when we say Hadar? You know what the Rambam writes? In his Hakdama to the parish of Mishnayot, when the Rambam discusses the laws that were given over from Moshe at Har Sinai, the Rambam writes the following. He says, The fact that from time immemorial, from the day that the Torah was given, no one has ever gone up. There are machlokets everywhere. There's dispute everywhere in the oral tradition. No one has ever disputed that Prietzadar meant an Etrog, I have a few drying up over, over there on one of the shelves. It has never meant anything different than an Etrog. How did they know that this generic, right, bring me a citrus fruit, that it meant the citron? How did they know? The Ramam says, Halacha Lemoshe Misinai. It was an oral law that was given over by Moshe directly at Harsinai, just like Shechita, just like how we know what Chelev is and not Chalav, and just like we're able to take thousands of other examples. And say the Torah wrote this, the written tradition tells this, the oral tradition needs to be able to explain to us how to make that actionable. So I want to, uh, we didn't quite finish everything that I had uh, intended to teach tonight. So still a few more slides uh, that we want to do, but uh, I'm much smarter than to keep people in a class longer uh, than was uh, originally slated. Um, I want to encourage everybody uh, to reach out to me. Send me any questions you have. Uh, I'm going to try and figure out a way to push some of the resources for my tangents. Uh, although Judith has been very uh, helpful tonight in uh, putting in Ruth Calderon's speech. I want to wish everybody the most beautiful Hanukkah, happy and healthy. I uh, Thank the CCE. Thank Judith for really the impetus uh, for these lectures and, uh, and uh, Rabbi Bernstein for his leadership, Rabbi Trencher as well. And, uh, and it's such a pleasure to learn with you guys. I can't wait to continue learning. Uh, many, many, many more times to come. Israt Hashem Yitvarach. Chanukah Sameach. Thank you all. Thank you.